You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Rethinking Economics, Lectures and Seminars on World Economics. It's a Collected Works, Volumes 340 and 341 in one volume. This is Lecture 4, entitled Labor and Value, given in Dornach on July 27, 1922. Yesterday I chose from the economic life a somewhat extreme example as an illustration. It appears that this illustration has caused some of you a good deal of brain-racking. I refer to the example of the tailor, who, as I said, works less cheaply if he makes his own suit of clothes for himself than he would if, while making clothes for other people, he bought his own from a merchant in the ordinary way, like the rest of us. Now, it is only too easy to miss the point of such a crude example for it is quite natural to work it out in this way. Merchants, in order to make some profit, will buy clothes from the tailor more cheaply than they will sell them. Hence it goes without saying that if the tailor buys a suit of clothes, he will pay more for it than he would if he made it for himself. He will, in fact, have to pay the merchant's profit in addition. This objection is so obvious that it is bound to occur. Nevertheless, I purposely chose this rather crude example because I wish to illustrate how necessary it is for present-day economic life to think not in terms of household economics, but in terms of the economic life as a whole. We must, in fact, reckon with all that arises from the division of labor. The important thing is not to consider how the tailor will stand directly after he has finished making the suit of clothes. It is true enough that if he proceeds to sell the suit to a merchant and then buys another suit for himself, he will have sustained a loss. That is not the point, however. The point is, how will he stand when he makes up his accounts after a certain lapse of time? Will he be in a better position if he made his own suit for himself? Or will he be in a better position if he refrained from doing so? In effect, when the division of labor works, it makes products cheaper in the right way. They become cheaper through the division of labor precisely in the whole system of economic relationships. If we work against the division of labor, we force down the price of one particular class of products. But this forcing down of prices will itself go against the mainstream of the economic process. In other words, though the tailor may save something on that particular suit, he will, by a very small figure, to begin with, force down the price of clothes. If many tailors do the same, the effect will be multiplied. Clothes will become cheaper, and the result will be that the tailor will have to supply other suits at a lower price. It will only be a question of time. After a certain time, he will observe in his balance sheet how much less income he has derived from the other suits, than he would have derived if he had not thus forced the prices down. 
We must not confuse the issue by thinking in the narrow spirit of household economics. I did not mean that the tailor has not a perfect right to make his own clothes for himself, or that he might not quite properly have a taste for doing so, only that he must not imagine that it will save him anything in the long run. On the contrary, it will be more expensive. Taking his total balance after a certain lapse of time, he will find that it is more expensive. I admit that in this crude example the effect will be comparatively slight, for the amount by which the price is forced down will become evident only after a considerable lapse of time. The tailor will have to make a large number of other suits before the very small fraction by which they are cheapened becomes effective. Nevertheless, sooner or later, it will appear in his general balance sheet. The economic process does indeed consist in an infinite number of interdependent factors. The single phenomenon is the outcome of an untold number of factors, all of which work into one another. To understand it, it simply will not do to think so very near at hand, if I may put it so. All your thinking on economics will lead to disaster if you let your thoughts be guided only by what lies in the immediate neighborhood of the individuals who are engaged in it. You will never come to grips with the economic process in this way. You must learn to envision the social organization in its totality. If you do so, you will also feel impelled to illustrate the facts by such extreme examples, where the effect, though it does not become apparent in a day, may make itself felt very strongly, say, in a decade. We must indeed take our start from such half-absurd examples to detach our thinking from familiar habits and lead it into a mode that comprehends wide issues and, losing its hard and fast contours in the process, gains the power to grasp what is continuously fluctuating. What lies close to us We can grasp in sharp outline, but our task is to achieve a real insight, an insight that gives us always mobile ideas, which never correspond to those we can gather in our immediate neighborhood. Today I especially want to mention this, for while we take our start from comparatively simple matters, we shall have to realize, nevertheless, how the economic process is built up little by little of the most manifold factors. We must come nearer and nearer to the possibility of grasping the problem of price. With this end in view, we shall today once more consider the economic process as such from a particular aspect. Let us begin today with nature. In the first place, human labor must set to work on nature, transforming nature's products. A product of nature thus receives the stamp of human labor. As transformed by human labor, it receives an economic value. In economics we are not dealing with the substance. The substance as such has no economic value. Coal as substance lying in mines under the earth has no economic value. Nor would it gain an economic value if it walked of its own accord from the mine into the house of the person who uses it for heating. What turns the substance into a value is the labor that has been impressed upon it. That is to say, all that had to be done to bring it to the light of day, to prepare the mines themselves, to transport the coal, and so forth.
It is only the human labor impressed upon the substance of the coal that gives it economic value. And this is all that we must concern ourselves with in economics. You cannot grasp any phenomenon of economic life if you do not start from such ideas as these. In the application of human labor to nature, we now come with the further evolution of the economic life to the division of labor. The division of labor arises whenever people work together in any task that has significance for economic life. Let us take a perfectly simple example. Suppose that in a certain district a number of men are working, and suppose that it is a very primitive time. From the various places where they live, the workers have to walk to the common scene of their labor, to a place where some particular product is extracted from nature. The workers have no other means of arriving at the place where they do this work. Then someone conceives the idea of making a cart and using horses to pull it. Henceforth, what formerly had to be done by each one alone will now be done by each individual in conjunction with the man who provides the cart. A certain part of the work is now divided. What is done, which is labor in the economic sense, is now divided. It will, of course, happen in this way that everyone who makes use of the cart will have to pay a certain quota to the enterprising individual who provided it. The inventor of the cart, however, thereby enters the category of the capitalist. For him the cart is now genuine capital. Wherever you look you will always see that this is so. The point of origin of capital always lies in the division, the qualitative division of labor. How was the cart invented? It was invented by the mind or spirit. Every such process indeed consists in the application of spirit to labor. In one respect or another, human labor is permeated by spirit. It is labor permeated by spirit that arises in the process of the division of labor. Where we see capital arise in the course of the division of labor, we have in the first place nothing other than labor penetrated by spirit. The first phase of capital always consists in this. Where human labor hitherto was determined only by nature, it is now organized, divided, and so forth, by spirit. It is indeed necessary to see capital and its formation very clearly from this point of view. Only from this point of view can we understand the function of capital in the economic process. The forming of capital is always a concomitant of the division, that is to say, the qualitative organic division of labor. In this process, however, something of the direct immediate connection that the human being has with nature when working upon the earth is always loosened. You see, so long as the economic life consists merely in the elaboration of nature, all that we deal with are the products of nature which, being transformed by human labor, acquire an economic value. The moment the human spirit organizes labor, however, organizes, that is to say, labor as such, parenthesis, for after all, to the man who creates capital with his cart, it will matter nothing to what end or for what purpose he transports the workers from one place to another, close parenthesis, 
and emancipation from nature begins to take place. Here, and he's referring to a di- the diagram on page 21, the left side, here, if I may put it so, we still see nature shining through human labor at all points. Although the value is constituted not by the coal as a substance, but by the human labor that is stamped upon it, nevertheless the nature product still shines through the human labor. This is one side from which economic values originate. The other side is this. Whatever in human labor is organized by spirit emancipates itself from nature, is lifted away from nature, until at length we have the capitalist, to whom the relation of the labor to nature that is being organized may be a matter of complete indifference. This, after all, may happen in a very simple way. Suppose a man has, hitherto, been driving people from many places to, say, some fields to do agricultural work. He may suddenly prefer to take his cart away and drive people to a quite different place and a quite other kind of work. Wherever spirit is applied, you will inevitably find the organized division of human labor becoming emancipated from its foundation in nature. Here, then, you have the emancipation of capital from the nature foundation of economic life. From various points of view, the idea has been expressed in economics that capital is stored labor power. But this is no more than a definition that will fit the facts only at a certain stage, because things are always fluctuating. So long as the organization, due to spirit, is narrowly bound to a certain kind of labor, nature will still shine through. The moment we emancipate ourselves, thinking only of how to make fruitful what we gain by application of spirit, the moment we do this, the more we shall observe the labor becoming indistinct within the total mass of capital. In its particular and specific character, the labor vanishes. Suppose you have been amassing capital for a considerable time and this capital continues to work in the economic process. The man who, to begin with, had only a single cart can extend his economic activity by acquiring a second cart and so on. His capital is working in the economic process, but there is really nothing left in it of the nature of labor. Look at a miner, for example. In him you still see very much of the nature of labor. In capital, however, you see less and less of it. We may go still further. Suppose the man with the carts hands the whole business over to another man. The transfer will very likely mean that the newcomer will be concerned only with fructifying what has thus been brought about by spirit. The nature of the labor that is thus organized will be a matter of indifference to him. He is concerned only with organizing, no matter what kind of labor. In other words, we have here a real process of abstraction. Precisely the same thing that we do inwardly in our logical thinking, in the process of abstraction, is here accomplished outwardly. The specific quality disappears. The specific qualities, both of the substance of nature and of the different kinds of labor, gradually disappear in the masses of capital. As you will presently see, if we follow the economic process still further, 
nothing whatsoever is left of the human labor that was originally organized. The further development of the economic process will be somewhat as follows. The man who built the cart did at least stamp his own spirit upon the whole invention, but now he earns more values than he can manage by himself. Are these values to remain unused in the whole economic life? Of course not. Another man must come along, able to manage them by means of a different kind of spirit. He will then turn the values to good account. He will make them valuable in quite a different way. After a time, for instance, the values created by the inventor of the cart, the fructification, which has thus resulted, may pass over to a blacksmith. The blacksmith has the spirit, the intelligence to erect a workshop, but with his spirit alone he can do nothing. The other man has already created certain economic values. These he must now transfer to his fellow man, the blacksmith. Here you have, indeed, in the outer world of reality, the most complete imaginable process of abstraction. It is essential, moreover, if the process is to go on at all, for how else could the Cartwright transmit his values to the blacksmith? It is essential for something to be there that is related as an abstract element to all the specific elements that are contained in the economic process. What is this something? It is, of course, in the first place, money. Money is nothing but the externally expressed value that is gained in the economic process through the division of labor and transmitted from one person to another. Thus we see that capitalism arises in the process of the division of labor. And in the process of capitalism, at a relatively early stage, the financial system, money, economics, in brackets, die Geldwirtschaft, in relation to all the particular economic processes, money is completely abstract. If you have five francs in your pocket, you can buy a supper, just as well as an article of clothing. Regarding the money itself, it is irrelevant what you acquire with it, or what it is exchanged for in the economic process. Money is the thing absolutely indifferent to the single factors in the economic life, insofar as they are still influenced by nature. For this very reason, money becomes the means of expression, the instrument, the medium for spirit, to enter into the economic organism in the division of labor. Without money being created, it is absolutely impossible for spirit to enter in and play its part in the economic organism, which depends on the division of labor. We may say, then, that what in a primitive economic condition is originally altogether what one does in egotism for oneself, is now divided up among the whole community. Such is the division of labor. With capital, the single parts are gathered up again into a total collected process. The forming of capital is a synthesis. Those who first emerge as creators of capital, being able to change it into money capital, since money must necessarily appear at this stage, become lenders to others who possess nothing but their spirit. The latter now receive the money, which is the true and proper representative of economic values 
created by spirit. We must really consider this thoroughly from the point of view of economics. However evil money may be from a religious or ethical point of view, in the economic sense, money is spirit at work in the economic organism. It is so, indeed. Once more, then, money must be created in the economic process if spirit is to progress at all from the initial point where it applies itself merely to spirit. Spirit would remain in an altogether primitive condition if it could do no more than this. To pour again into the economic process what has been achieved by the application of spirit, spirit must be realized in the form of money. Money is the realization of spirit. But the concrete quality comes back into it again. In the first place, money is an abstract thing. For as we said before, to money it is a matter of indifference whether for the five francs in my pocket I buy an article of clothing or get my hair cut, several times if you like. The moment money returns to the individual human being, that is to the individual human spirit, it becomes economically active once more as a concrete and specific fact. The spirit is economically active in the money. Now at this point a very special relationship arises. The one who acquired the money to begin with becomes the lender, the creditor. The other who receives the money, the individual, the man we will suppose who has only spirit, becomes the debtor. You have here a relationship between two human beings. The same relationship will also come about if the lenders are a whole number of people who hand over their extra capital to the man so that a higher synthesis is brought about by his intelligence, spirit. He is then the debtor and works on a foundation entirely emancipated from the basis of nature. What he actually receives from the original capitalists themselves is a non-entity in his hands. He will have to give it back again after a time. It does not really belong to him. In effect, it is only from one side that he works economically as a debtor. From the other side, he is economically responsible as a creative individual. Truth to tell, this is perhaps one of the healthiest relationships, and this point is especially important in relation to the social question. For the one who works out of the sphere of human intelligence or spirit, being enabled to work for the general community through the giving of the necessary money by the general community. So far as he is concerned, it is the, gen- it is the community. How property, possession, and the like enter into the matter is a question we shall have to consider another time. Our present object is only to trace the economic process as such. Here it is a matter of indifference whether or not you conceive of the lender as the real owner, and whether or not you conceive of the debtor as the jurisprudence does. As jurisprudence does. For the moment we are concerned only with this question. How does the economic process take its course? Here then, we have a part of the economic process where the work is founded purely on what has already been spiritually, culturally achieved and acquired. That is to say, the very foundation of the work 
is already emancipated from the basis of nature. True, it originated in the organization of labor, but we are now at the second stage. And if, at this second stage, where where worker out of the spirit works as a debtor, you would still describe the borrowed capital that he receives as, in quotes, crystallized labor, or the like, you would be talking economically sheer nonsense. It is immaterial to the economic process how the capital that he owes originated. The important thing now is the spirit, the intelligence of the one who receives the money. Will this person be able to lead it over into fruitful economic processes? The original labor through which the capital arose no longer has an economic value. The spirit that is applied in turning the money to good account, giving it value, this alone will have economic value at this stage. Whatever the amount of labor you conceive as being stored up in the capital, if a fool gets hold of it and scatters it all to the winds, it is an altogether different thing than if a clever person gets hold of it and starts a fruitful economic process with it. At this second stage, therefore, where we have to do with lender and debtor, we are dealing with capital from which the labor has already disappeared. What then is the economic significance of this capital from which the labor has disappeared? It is twofold. In the first place, it has been possible to raise and collect the capital for lending purposes. And in the second place, the capital thus raised can be given value by spiritual cultural means. Therein lies its true economic significance. The reality that emerges from the process is the relation between the debtor and the creditors. In the economic process to which the debtor now gives rise, the debtor stands in the middle. On the one hand we have the person as a debtor, on the other hand we have what proceeds from this person as a spiritually cultural productive individual. What on the one hand is lent or invested capital, through the very fact that it becomes owed or borrowed capital, passes over into the second stage of the economic process. This is simply the circulation of capital, nothing else. This circulation is part and parcel of a social organic activity, just as you have the blood in a human or animal organic activity when it flows through the head and is used for what the head produces. I may put it in this way. What is it that is brought about through this relationship of lenders and debtors? It is very similar to the, quote, difference of level, close quote, we meet with in physics. If you have water up here, it will flow down there, simply through the difference of level. In like manner, there is a social difference of level between the first position of the capital, the position of the lender who does not know what to do with it, and the second position of the debtor who can make good use of it. This difference works as a difference of level. But you must pause a moment to consider the active driving force in this difference of level. The active principle is not simply the spirit, which is at work in the whole process. 
It is the diversity of human talents and dispositions. That is the determining factor in the difference of level. If a lazy-minded person possesses capital, then in a healthy economic organization that person will be above, while the clever person will be below. The result is a drop or difference of level, and the capital flows downward to the clever person. It is through the difference of level between the talents of individuals that capital is brought into flow. It is not even the positive activity of individuals. It is simply the human qualities of those who are united together in the social organism that produce this difference of level and in so doing carry forward the economic process. Look at this economic process quite concretely and you will conclude that we start from nature which has as yet no value. Clearly it has no value, for the sparrow satisfying its needs from nature pays nothing for it. This is evident from the contrast of sparrow economy and human economy. Economic value begins when human labor unites itself with nature. Next, the economic process is continued through the division, the differentiation of labor. Let us take it to begin with in an absolutely general way. We have human labor applied to nature. I will put it down as follows, though the full economic meaning of this will only emerge, excuse me, will emerge only in the further course of these lectures. Let us designate what arises at this stage by N1. Nature taken hold of by human labor. N1. What is it, economically speaking? It is, as we have already seen, a value. I will call it nature taken hold of by human labor and thus made into a value, N1 to the V power, that is one side. Now comes the division of labor. What does it signify? It signifies a dividing up of those processes that were performed in the first place as single completed labor processes applied to nature that which now that which now live a separate life let me read that again what does it signify it signifies a dividing up of those processes that were performed in the first place as single completed labor processes applied to nature that which now live a separate life if i make a whole stove i shall be performing many and varied labor processes if I now introduce the division of labor, I peel and part the labor processes one from another. I divide. If N1 to the V is nature product transformed by labor and made into a value, then what arises by the division of labor, of course we might denote it in many different ways, it will be N1 to the V1, N1 to the V2, and so on. Now, if all this is a real process, how shall we express what happens when the division of labor makes its appearance? Clearly, we should express it by a division, by a fraction. When the value that I have here written down passes over into the division of labor, the thing that is there in the reality must in some way be divided. By what is it divided? What is the dividing principle? What is it that divides up the process? 
we must now look to the other side. In pure mathematics we take only what is given as number, but when we are to seek such arithmetical processes in the world of reality itself, we must look for the real divisor, the real dividing principle. Now, as you will remember, we found on the other side of the picture, quote, labor taken hold of by the Spirit, close quote. Over against this, N1 to the V, we may, therefore, place labor taken hold of by the Spirit. This becomes a value on the other side, LS to the V. Now we have today reached a certain conclusion concerning this, quote, labor taken hold of by the Spirit, close quote, LS to the V. We have seen what must arise if it is to work on beyond a certain point in the economic process, and if this N1 to the V is divided and is to work on in the economic process, we have seen what enters the process for this LS to the V, labor organized by the Spirit and made into a value. It is money. Money appears at this point, not in its fully abstract nature. It is abstract to begin with, if I may put it so, abstract as the substance to which spirit first applies itself. But it grows highly individualized, highly specific, when spirit takes hold of it and uses it for this or that purpose. In doing so, it is spirit as such that determines the value of the money. Here, you see, money begins to gain a concrete and specific value. Whether a person is a fool and throws the money away on something that turns out to be unfruitful, or whether the person applies it in a useful way, this now emerges as a very real value in the economic process. For your denominator, therefore, you will here get something that has to do with money, while your numerator, I need hardly say, will have to do with the fact that you have before you that into which the substance of nature has been transformed. What is a substance of nature transformed by labor and present in the economic process? It is a commodity. This then is the numerator, and for the denominator corresponding to labor organized by spirit, you will have money. And so here he has sort of a, a equation on the left side is a fraction, N1 to the V divided by LS to the V. Let me say that again. N1 to the V divided by LS to the V, and then an equal sign, and on the other side another fraction, commodity over money. Okay, so we have N1 to the V over LS to the V equals commodity over money. New values come to light the commodity value and the money value. In the economic process, founded on the division of labor, we must recognize this truth. The quotient of the total commodity pres commodities present in the economic organism and the money present in the economic organism, taking as money not what is counted in the registers but what is actually taken hold of by spirit in human beings, will represent a real interaction. Money is the divisor. This interaction, which cannot be represented by a subtraction but only by a division, represents the real health of the economic process.
to understand of what this health consists, we must learn to understand what is at work in the numerator here and in the denominator. We must understand more and more wherein the essential nature of a commodity on the one hand and of the medium of circulation, the money on the other hand, consists. The most essential economic question cannot be solved at all unless we proceed in this exact way. We must not forget that whatever appears in the economic life will always be fluctuating. The moment the commodity is taken from one place to another, the numerator here will change. I can do nothing other than point out at every turn how fluctuating all things are in the economic process. There is a great difference between the wallet with five francs that I have in my pocket and the wallet with five francs another person has. It is not a matter of indifference whether the five francs are in the one pocket or the other. This, too, must be taken as belonging to the real economic process. You will get otherwise only a few rigid, abstract, arbitrary concepts of price, value, commodity, production, consumption, and so on, you will get nothing to lead you to a true understanding of the economic process. This is what is infinitely sad in the present day. For many centuries humankind has grown accustomed to sharply outlined concepts, but such are inapplicable to a living process. Today we are called upon by the facts of life to welcome movement into our concepts so as to penetrate the economic processes with conscious understanding. But we cannot do so. This is what we must attain, mobility of thinking, so as to be able to think a process through to its end quite inwardly. True, in ordinary science we also contemplate processes, we think them through, if you will, but we always see them from outside and that is of no avail in economics. To contemplate the economic process as the chemist contemplates chemical processes from outside, you would have to go far up above the earth in a balloon. The economic processes are distinguished by the fact that we ourselves are in them, therefore we must see them from within. We must feel ourselves within the economic processes, just like a being that is inside a chemist's retort where something is being concocted with a great generation of heat. The being in the retort, that I am now comparing with ourselves, cannot, of course, be the chemist. The being would have to be taking part in the heat, boiling with it, as it were. The chemist cannot do this. To the chemist the whole thing is external. In natural science we stand outside the process. The chemist could not take part in it with the temperature in the retort far above boiling point. The economic process is different, however. We ourselves partake in it inwardly at every point. Therefore we must understand it inwardly as well. A mathematician may well object that we have written something like a formula, but mathematicians are not used to building up mathematical formulas in this way. This is true enough. Usually we build up a mathematical formula only as a result of contemplating natural processes from without. We must evolve a faculty of insight to get a numerator and denominator in this way or to understand that it must be something like a division 
that it cannot be a subtraction in this case. We must try to think our way into the economic process. For this very reason I chose that crude example yesterday. I did not introduce to you a tailor and a merchant from outside as a scientist would. What is essential could not have been found in that way. With our thinking accustomed to seeing things only as the natural science does from outside, we feel it is strange to get inside a process. Nevertheless, we must conceive inwardly the countless processes that intervene between the tailor and the effects that follow in the economic process. I would not be true to the task you have set me if I described these things in any other manner. I am well aware that this makes it somewhat difficult from the outset. The end of Lecture 4